Welcome to the Kenosha City Church Podcast. Take a deep dive into this chapter-by-chapter study through the book of Revelation, telling of things to come. In this message, we'll be in chapters 5 through 6 as we look at the beginning of the end of time. Enjoy the message. All right, we are in the Be Ready. It is a study on the book of Revelation. Uh, and again, Revelation is a, the last book of the Bible. Uh, the first three chapters are a letter that explains to different churches, seven churches to be specific in, in the modern day of Turkey, that they need to be prepared. The churches need to be prepared for the second coming of Jesus. Now, it wasn't just for those seven churches. Uh, those seven churches represent all churches of all time that we need to be ready for the second coming of Jesus at any moment. It was written by the Apostle John. John was exiled on the island of Patmos where uh, he was the last surviving apostle. He was the last apostle to live. Uh, And so he was the last surviving apostle. He was on this island by himself where God revealed uh, the end of the world to him. And as we were at last week in chapter 4, John was caught up in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, into heaven. And what he saw was heavenly worship. He saw the entire church. He saw the angels around the throne of Jesus Christ worshiping holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty on repeat forever. And he was captivated in awe. And it sets up today uh, the picture of when Jesus is ready to open up The end of the world. I know, it sounds pretty ominous, right? Now, we don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know when Jesus Christ will come back and inaugurate the beginning of the end. But it will happen without warning. Jesus said specifically in the Gospels that we will not know the times, but we will be able to see birth pains or warning signs. And we're at a point in Revelation in our study this morning that the anticipation is over. We begin to see, we move from uh, current narrative of their day to chapter six, onward is all future. We're gonna be going in a portion for the rest of our time in this study uh, is gonna be all future. It is yet to happen. We're looking into the future. I think that's pretty cool. And we can anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ. Now there are so many things that we can anticipate in life. There's so many things that you anticipate in life uh, Perhaps. Maybe you're in school and you want to get out of school. Uh, maybe you're single and you want to be married. Maybe you're married, you want to have kids. Maybe you have kids, you're like, I want them out. I want to retire. I want to enjoy my, my empty nest. Uh, some of you are excited about grandkids. We're all at different levels, different places, not levels, it's just different seasons, really, uh, of, of where you're at in life. And it's often that next season, it's often that next thing we long for. And so much sometimes that we begin to forget about the ultimate anticipation we need to have. So what is that? What is the thing that you anticipate most this morning? For me, I would say the biggest anticipation in my life, minus the arrival of my kids, was my engagement and marriage to Allison. Now, um, uh, we, we dated for uh, about, a, uh, well, we, we dated for, how many months did we date before we got engaged? It was uh, six months? Yeah, all right, so yeah, it was, uh, it was quick, all right? So, uh, but, uh, and so I started plotting. I knew I wanted to, to, to marry this girl. We met at Trinity, and I, and I said, you know what? I, I began to anticipate and begin to plot. How am I going to ask her uh, to marry me? And so I had an idea. I had an idea. So what I did was, is I drew up a map, a treasure map uh, that was going to 
the X marks the spot of where I was going to propose. And so I went down to Deerfield, uh, to the Barnes & Noble, one of the first places we went on a date. I took this map, I folded it up, and I put it in the 23rd book of, a, of the Nancy Drew series. She loved Nancy Drew growing up. She still co collected it a bit. And so I put it in the 23rd book because that was our dating anniversary and it was going to be our wedding anniversary, all right? So I put it in the, in the 23rd book and I hid it in there, drove back up, and it dawned on me the next night. It's like, wait a minute. <laughs> what if somebody buys that book uh, by, by tomorrow? I was like freaking out the entire night. And so anyway, the next day, I show up after I was, after I was done with work and I was all dressed up and I said, Allison, get dressed up. We're going somewhere. And her heart starts to beat because she begins to anticipate, what is going on? And so I drove her down to Barnes & Noble, and she was completely thrown off, like, we're dressing up to go to Barnes & Noble? And so we went up to the children's section. We went to Nancy Drew. She's totally confused. I'm like, hey, I had no idea how I was going to pull this off. I was like, hey, so just pick out some Nancy Drew books that you like. And so she picked every one but that 23rd one, right? And finally, I'm like, well, what about this one, the 23rd one? And she looked at it, and she opened it up. And to my dismay, the map wasn't there. No, I'm just kidding. It was there. The map was there. She opened it up and she knew. Her heart began to beat. She knew. There she is. She knew, uh-oh, something is up, all right? And so we drove down. We had dinner. We went to Navy Pier. But the X, I don't know if you can really see it right there, that was my attempt to draw on a fountain. That was Buckingham Fountain. And so we arrived at Buckingham Fountain. Here's the next picture. She was able to navigate. It must have been pretty good right there. There's Buckingham Fountain. But the, but the path was just off Buckingham Fountain. So it was off like this path where there's some bushes. And I said, and she's like, why is this map ended the bushes? I'm like, look in the bushes. So she looked in the bushes, and it was hilarious. She's like, I don't know what I'm looking for. And then I got on my knee, and I said, would you marry me? And she said, well, she said yes, all right? So, but, uh, <laughs> but the thing is this. That was probably the biggest moment of my anticipation. And my heart was beating, your heart was beating. And she thought in her mind, I was like, did you know what was going to happen? She's like, I don't know. Sometimes you're up to practical jokes. I thought just maybe, just maybe it might not happen. There's so many things that, we can share that we anticipated that came or, or that we are longing for that have yet to be. There are many things that we can anticipate. So honestly speaking, what are those things that perhaps you're anticipating this morning that even eclipse your anticipation for the second coming of Jesus? What is it? What is that anticipation? Because here's the deal. When Jesus says he's coming back, that's going to eclipse anything and everything that you think is awesome. Nothing should make Jesus wait because Jesus is going to be the single most greatest thing that happens to us in our life. And so today's portion of Revelation, we're going to see great anticipation of an event that will set off a chain of events that will, affect, that will affect everyone in the entire world. It's going to affect you. It's going to affect me. It's going to affect all of society, the entire world. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 5. If you want to turn there, Revelation chapter 5, you can turn there in your Bibles or your Version Bible app or our Kenosha City Church app, whatever, wherever you want to go. But open up your Bibles, get ready to take notes, because like I said in the book of Revelation, you're not going to remember a thing if you just try to put it in your memory all right revelation chapter 5 verse 1 it says this john is now uh, he's been worshiping experiencing the worship and now it pivots then i saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne that is jesus i saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides sealed with seven seals so john sees jesus in his right hand is a scroll, 
and it is sealed with seven seals. I said last week it was common for inheritances in the Roman Empire to have seven seals. And when you broke those, that inheritance became yours. What Jesus is holding in his hand, he's not inheriting heaven and earth. He already owns it. This is a deed to reclaim. This is a deed to make new what he created. And he's holding this deed in his hand. And when it is opened, it will, it will unleash divine judgments to make all things new. So don't miss this. In Jesus' hand, he has the whole world. In Jesus' hand, he has all of history in the palm of his hands, which means this. If he has all of history, that means he has your history. He has every worry. He has every fear. He has every victory. Uh, he, has, he has every facet of your life, your future, your past, your present. It's all in his hands, and it's all in his control. So this is our main point this morning. Write this down. Your life is in the palm of his hand. Your life is in the palm of his hand. He owns history. He owns your history. Your history is in his sight. God is sovereign in his plans. And the key is not missing the point of his plans. And I'm not just talking about the book of Revelation missing the point. The point of Revelation uh, isn't uh, the, the when and the how. It's the who, right? And, but I don't want you missing the point of Revelation. I don't want you missing the point of the entire Bible. The word of God which leads us not only to know the word of God, but to live out the word of God in every aspect of our life. Don't miss this point because he is in complete and absolute control. The opposite is we can hold tightly to the things of our life. We can think that we are in control. And as a result, instead of holding loosely the things of our life, we grab on. We grab on, we grab on, right, to the things. It could be your possessions, it could be your fears. We hold on, and the tighter and tighter we hold, the more control we think we have. But that's just an illusion. Do you know that? That's just an illusion. Your life matters to God. That's why Jesus Christ died on the cross to save you from your sins. He came to make you new. He came, he came to make you new, and all those who receive him will be considered sons and daughters of the Most High King. That your sins will be never remembered again. They're forgiven. Tossed to the bottom of the sea. Isn't that amazing, church? That we get to live in a season, the church age, which is called grace. That means undeserved favor that God bestows on us, and likewise we get to bestow on others. He is Lord. He's in control. And he's coming back to, to gather those that are his and to judge the world that never placed their faith and trust in him. And nothing will stop his plan. Which brings you to a decision point, brings me to a decision point. Will we follow? Will we follow the Lord in all areas of our life? Will we love him? Will we cherish Jesus above anything and everything else? Will he be on mission? Will, will, you, will you live out the mission that Jesus Christ Gave to you. That is the most, that is the biggest struggle in the affluent countries of this world. The affluent countries of this world of which we live in, the poorest person is the richest person in Africa, in some of the African nations. Will we hold on to the mission or will we hold on to our own way of life? We must be part of the mission because when Jesus comes back for the believer, 
Uh, he, will, he will consider, have we been on mission? Have we been reaching others for Christ? Have we been making fully devoted followers of Christ? So Revelation is a reminder. He is coming soon, and he's about to start a new era in history. His return means everything for us. It is relevant. I know that Revelation, because it's hard, or because it's been misunderstood, or because people have twisted it to mean things that doesn't mean that sometimes in our hearts we can just relegate it to the book that we least read and, and, and the relegate it to, you know, okay, yeah, Christ is coming back, but it's not really relevant because it's hard. No, it's relevant. And his return should affect every aspect of your life. It should align every aspect of your life. He holds the history of this world. He holds your life in the palm of his hands. So today we're gonna look at what happens when the scroll is open the beginning of the end begins. And we're going to look at this through the scope of three questions. Question one is, we're going to look at, are we in the lead up to the end? We began asking this question last week. We're going to add to that. Secondly, we're going to, we're going to look at, will the church encounter the end? Will, will the church go through the wrath of God? And then finally, we will begin the question of what will the beginning of the end actually looks like? We will salt your, salt your, your taste buds uh, for next week. So we've been hovering about 5,000 feet as we've been studying, if we were in a plane, as we've been studying Revelation, we've been hovering about 5,000 feet, getting stuck on words here and there. But we're gonna, for a while here, we're gonna actually go up to about 20,000 feet, sometimes 30,000 feet. Sometimes we'll go down to 5,000 feet, get a little bit more detailed. But today we're gonna start our liftoff to look at a little bit more of an overview of the judgments that we see uh, Christ will unveil. Let's look at question number one. Are we in the lead up to the end? I began asking this question last week. Again, we'll never know the exact date or time, but I believe that we can know or begin to ascertain uh, that the end may indeed be coming. The Bible calls this birth pains. He calls it signs. In fact, prophecy is one of the main ways that we see that God is active and that he is revealing clues uh, to his people to, as reminders to always be ready. We see this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 32. Now learn this lesson from the fig trees. This is Jesus speaking. Now learn this lesson from a fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender, as its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So there are prophecies throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, that speak of the end of the world, that speak of the end times. And they provide a picture of what it will be like. And even though you can study the end times your entire life, uh, biblical uh, theologians still don't want to agree on all the fine points. And that's okay. We must agree, though, that Jesus is coming back and we need to be ready. But notice verse 32. Jesus speaks of a fig tree, which was very common. People even had these in their front yard. Even children knew that a budding fig tree meant that summer and, and the spring and summer was upon them. And they knew that it would ripen in the fall, and when, and when the fig trees were ripened and there were figs, they knew it was time for harvest. And so what Jesus is saying here is that we can understand when things seem off in the world, that is to remind us that the end, we are closer to the end. It also reminds us, as he's using a fig tree, that in the end there will be a harvest. A harvest is this, when, when scripture speaks of a harvest, it is when the, the full amount of believers uh, has occurred. And at that point, Jesus will separate those who did not place their faith and trust in him from those that have at the great judgment. Right now, 
uh, we will see signs that will make you wonder, is this the time? There are plenty of signs, right? I mean, you can't help but turn on the news and just wonder time and time and time again, are we closer to the end? I can't tell you that for certain. I believe we are. That's why I'm giving you reasons. But even if we're not, I can tell you this. This isn't cheesy. It's real. We are closer today than we were yesterday. We're closer right now than we were even a second ago when we started this message. We are getting closer, and we need to be ready. Whether we meet him by our own, uh, when, we, when we die and meet him, or he comes in our lifetime, we are getting closer to standing before our Lord face to face. And so we need to fully realign him now. So we have prophecies, and I think when you read the prophecies, you can realize, yes, indeed, we are getting close to the end. Secondly, we notice something here, verse 34 of Matthew 24. He talks about this generation shall not pass. Go ahead and put that up there again, Matthew chapter 24, verse 32. Go ahead and put that passage up there. You'll notice in verse 34, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things happen. So Jesus is speaking of a fig tree. He's saying you're going to see this season of when the world is going to end, and he's giving us a clue. This generation shall not pass. What he's saying is there is going to be a generation of people that they will, they will experience the full breadth of the lead-up and also through the end times. Who is that generation? Who is that? How long is a generation? Last week I spoke, I, I speculated, well, lifespans between 70 and 120 years. So we know that this generation wasn't speaking of the disciples. They have all passed on. So who is it? Well, we don't know for all certainty here. I'm going to take a stab at it. But I believe, though, that this generation shall not pass must include the nation of Israel. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Israel wasn't on the map until 1948, all right? And we know that Israel is promised to be part of the end times, promised specifically, not that they're just a nation on the map, but also that there's going to be a great revival throughout Israel where many, many people that are currently not followers of Jesus will be followers of Jesus from the Jewish people. And so uh, we're promised this actually in Romans chapter 11, verse 11. I asked them, have they stumbled as to fall? So this, they're, they're asking, uh, Paul's asking, uh, hypothetically, uh, Israel is, first off, wasn't on the map when, when, he, when the Bible was written. Did you know that? Israel was gone, all right? And so uh, he's asking, have they stumbled so as to fall? And his answer is absolutely not. Israel still has a plan. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. So by God's divine plan, he knew that Israel was going to fall into captivity in 586 B.C. And God's sovereignty, he knew the nation of Israel would not come back until 1948 A.D. And he knew that during this time, he knew especially during the church age, that the message of salvation that was entrusted to the nation of Israel would now be entrusted with anybody and everybody in the world that receives Jesus Christ. Gentiles in scripture is a word that's used for anybody who's not a a, 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 has Jewish heritage from Israel. So now if their transgression, that's Israel, brings riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring? Is, and it goes on, it talks about Israel being grafted back into the vine. Israel has a gigantic plan as we will see unveiled through the rest of Revelation and I believe that has a huge ramification for who the, this generation that will not pass, that will see the end times. Israel, again, had been exiled for 2,000 years. It was simply not on our map. But in 1948, Israel, after the atrocities of World War II, the Allied nations created a space for the Jewish people, and they named it the Nation of Israel in 1948. 
the first generation in 2,000 years would call their home Israel, exactly where the Bible had appropriated Israel. And 72 years ago, this took place. It set into motion, I believe, biblical prophecies. And Israel will be a major focal point and is a major focal point for the world. So this generation includes those giving their life to Christ, including the nation of Israel. And there will be a great revival in Israel before and during the end times. So if a generation lasts 70 to 120 years, and the modern day Israel has been in existence for 72 years, you can see, I'm speculating here, but you can see we very well could be in the midst of unveiling biblical prophecies. And by the way, if I'm wrong, it's not because God's word's wrong, it's because my speculation is wrong. What we do know is right is that Jesus is coming back. We just simply don't know the time. But I do believe it's getting close. Another clue that we have beyond this generation will not pass is that many will fall away in latter times. Matthew 24, 24, it says, For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. That's huge. There are, and today, and throughout world history, there have been antichrists. Now, I'm not talking about the antichrist. Uh, in Revelation, there will be a, and we'll talk about him in just a moment, a, a major figure called the antichrist. But throughout history, we've had lowercase a, antichrist. An antichrist simply is this, somebody who opposes the things of Jesus, somebody who is, uh, moves people away from the clear teaching of the Bible, rejecting the obedience of the Bible. Antichrist center on deception against the things of Christ, bending and twisting his word. And there are no shortages of lowercase a antichrists even in this world today, especially those who claim to know Jesus, those who have uh, platforms online. Instagram is full of antichrists where they talk about the love of Jesus. They talk about different knowledges that they have of Jesus. They have podcasts about Jesus. And it seems right until it's not right. And their gospel is always wrong. These individuals are what we would call wolves or false prophets or, well, if you really want to get dramatic, you can call them an antichrist, a generic antichrist. Speaking spiritually, that sounds like the Bible, but the gospel is just a little off. And if the gospel is a little off, it's all off. It's all off. Just last week, another very famous worship leader twisted the Great Commission on Instagram. He stated that truth is less important than love. And my question is this, when in the world did it ever become a thing to juxtapose, uh, to, to, to oppose two things that we need to hold true. Like, we need love, right? We need to love each other. Uh, we need to love each other with, with the immense love of, of Christ. It's hard sometimes, right? We need the grace of Jesus Christ, right? But we also need truth. We need spirit and truth. We need, we need the love of Jesus as we, uh, as we unpack his truth. But again, a, a common thing that we see from these false teachers that are leading many astray is that they're like, it's all about love. It doesn't matter about theology. It doesn't matter about doctrine. It doesn't matter about the Great Commission. It's about love. It's about love. And like, it is about love, but it's also about what Jesus said. Amen? And notice what it says here. That in the last days, even possibly the elect will go astray. I've witnessed this in part, in some ways, even from colleagues from I went, who I went to school with who are getting the same theological degrees, and today uh, they are pontificating online uh, how they've moved away and deconstructed and reconstructed uh, different understandings that they even were taught in school. 
and they've detached from the uh, centrality of the cross. They've detached from that Jesus Christ is the only way. And he's saying, well, he's just a nice way. Or, or maybe they've, they've, many have abandoned biblical sexual ethics and they're saying, you know what, sexual identity and all these different things, it's, it's, it's about love. And they've detached from these things that are just are jaw-dropping. And What is going on? And we are living, I believe right now, before our very eyes in an era of increased deception. And it will always begin with questioning what is very plain in Scripture. It also overemphasizes, and this is where I feel like many evangelicals, we can get into trouble right now, overemphasizing the obscure in Scripture and building a gigantic theology of it. Something, maybe you have half a verse. You know, the Mormons, they, they see this really obscure verse saying baptizing the dead. Theologians are like, Hmm? Like, they think it may have been them borrowing something from culture. Uh, again, I'm bringing up an obscure verse. Well, guess what? The Mormons have taken that as a gigantic verse to where they baptize people uh, in place of people that have already passed on. Because of that verse. People, whenever you take a small verse and build a gigantic theology or gigantic practice, I want you to know that you're going to be fringe at best. You may have walked into a cult. Alistair Begg, again, said it best. I said this last week. I'm going to repeat it again. Remember, we need to make the plain thing the main thing and the main thing the plain thing. And it leads to this. Uh, when, when, when we see in the latter times that many in the church will fall away when people aren't making the main thing the plain thing or they're trying to obscure the main thing into something like, did he, God really mean that? Yes, he really did mean that. We see this in 2 Timothy 3.1. It goes on to this. It says, but know this. Hard times will come in the last days. For people will become lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power, avoid these people. There will be many people that sound super spiritual, whether the online influencers or wherever, and the Bible says avoid it. And many in the end will claim to know some certain theology but not have the proper outflow of it. Or they'll have an outflow but it doesn't come from theology. Many people will claim to do things in their own strength but not in the power and the filling of the Holy Spirit. They'll have a form of godliness but deny its power. And here's the deal. Let's get really real here. God sees right through our worship our theology, what we say out of our words, if we're harboring sin and we're harboring bitterness and we're harboring anything that is contrary to the things of God. In fact, I would tell you this right now. I usually like, hey, you know, don't scroll or don't text during the message. But if there's somebody you need to get right right now, I don't want you worshiping at the end of the, of the service and doing this. If you don't text them right now and say, hey, you know what, well, we, we, we need to figure this out. Don't blame anybody, by the way. Take the responsibility now of where your faith is at. We must do that. If he could come at any moment, we must take the personal responsibility and submit to the sovereignty of God because we will all stand before him. I will stand before him. We will all stand before him. And we won't be able to say, God, could you just wait one more second? I have something else I need to do. <laughs> He's not going to do that. He's not going to do that. Is the end near? I think the signs point to it. But I do not know specifically, but I do know we're closer. And your life and my life is in the palm of his hand. 
Second question. When the end comes, where will the church be? Will we go through the wrath? Will we go through all the pain and suffering and even death that, that God unleashes upon this world? And this is where, maybe even in this room, there may be differing opinions on this. That's okay. Uh, I'm going to try to go through some of these differing opinions, and then you're going to hear very loud and clear where I land. All right, Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. So we're in this scene in heaven. We see Jesus on the throne holding the scroll. And the mighty angels who are not named, some people believe it's the archangel Michael, proclaims, it's time to open the seal. He asks, who's worthy to break these seals? Who's worthy to open these seals? But notice, there is radio silence. The fate of history was depending on the opening of this scroll. And there was a dramatic pause. And John felt it. He got caught up in that question. All the promises of God are fulfilled by the opening of this scroll. And nobody can open it. So verse 4, he responds, I wept and I wept because there was no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. He's like, he began to cry. And that word wept is an ugly cry. I mean, the snot is going down, right? His tears are, he's crying to where he has no longer any more tears. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. John wept because he wanted to see the evil done away with in this world. He, he had been exiled on the island of Patmos. He wanted sin dealt with. He wanted the brokenness of his present and his past dealt with. He wanted the promises of the, of the future to be fulfilled. He wanted to see Satan squashed. Don't we want to see Satan squashed in our lives and in this world church? Amen? And so you can understand why he was caught up in this emotion. Almost forgetting that, wait, you know who's the one that can open this? The one who's holding the scroll. The one who's holding the scroll in his right hand. How often do we do that? In our life, we know the promises of God. We know what God has clearly said in his word. And we know what God has clearly done in our life. And yet, we question, Spirit of the living God, where are you? Oh no, I better take things in my own strength, in my own words. How many times do we do that? We all do that, don't we, church? We begin to lament God, what are you going to do? Are you going to show up in my life right now? Not only is he aware of every lament, of every false worry you have in your life, and every legitimate concern that you have in your heart, he is aware of it. And your history is wrapped up in the promises of that scroll that he can open. Verse 6, Then I saw the one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne, and the four living creatures among the elders. 
He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into the earth. And he went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. We get another apocalyptic description of Jesus. Again, an apocalyptic description means to reveal. He's revealing an imagery uh, that... that, uh, pictures reality of who Jesus really is. And so what we see here, he was like a slaughtered lamb. I imagine John saw the holes in his hand. I'm sure that he saw the gash in his side, maybe the scars on his forehead, the crucified, risen Savior is victorious. He's on his throne. He has the scroll. And we see that Jesus is described as having seven horns. That's a little weird, (laughs) right? Seven horns, right? You Google that image, you're like, ugh, Right? Here's the deal. It's apocalyptic language. A horn uh, in this era meant power. The horn of a bull, power. Seven is the perfect number. What he's saying is our slaughtered lamb of God who stands in victory is all powerful. We notice he has seven eyes, which means that he is all-knowing. There's nothing that surprises God. And then we see the seven spirits, which is the Holy Spirit who goes before Jesus and signs and wonders. Jesus is the one who's all-powerful and all-knowing. No one can overcome him. No one can twist his arm. No one can ignore him or fool him. Jesus is going to Jesus. What I mean is that is he's in control, and he's going to do what he predetermined he's going to do in the past. Amen? And so today, in 2022, Jesus is still holding that scroll But in the future, and perhaps the not-so-distant future, Jesus will open that scroll. So back to our question. When he opens that scroll and pours out his wrath, will the church go through it? Revelation 6.1. Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals. When the seals open, there'll be a series of judgments. And we'll go over these in the next few weeks. They'll be so cataclysmic, the entire world will be affected. There'll be a seven year of what the Bible calls a great tribulation. During this tribulation, God's wrath will be poured out in these seven years. Many people will will come to Christ. Uh, Many people will live through the tribulation. Many people will die through the tribulation. And at the conclusion of the seven year tribulation, everyone will face God as the judge. So will we have to face the wrath before the end of the seven years? And again, there's a number of views of the biblical Christianity. So for those of you that love charts, I have spent five weeks out showing you one chart. Guess what? It's chart time, all right? Get your pens out. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. This is going to be our, our basis of, of where I, I'm, you're going to see where I land today, but I'm going to present different views. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we always will be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So what we have here is Paul's encouraging the church of Thessalonica. Some false teachers came in, and they told the church of Thessalonica, oh, psh, by the way, we have some inside knowledge on the end times. Like, really? Yeah, you missed it. What? Yeah, you missed it. Jesus already came. And so the church has got lazy, right? They're like, well, we missed it. 
And, you know, and, and, and some people, and then there's other false teachers are like, hey, by the way, uh, you didn't miss it, but you know the people that died are on the ground? Yeah, they missed it. And so they're just massively confused about the end time. So Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us some wonderful revelation, not the book of Revelation, wonderful word of God and pictures of the end times in First and Second Thessalonians. So Paul's speaking and correcting the Thessalonian church about the end times, and Paul gets very specific of what will happen at the beginning of the end. Verse 17, we see a word, then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up. That's a very key word here. Uh, In the Greek, it literally means to be snatched away, to be taken away by force. Other scriptures talk about a twinkling of an eye, here today and gone tomorrow. The Latin translation of this Greek word is Rapturo, it's where we get the English word rapture. Some people today say, you know, the rapture is just not in the Bible. Well, it is. Uh, if you go back to the Latin and you retranslate the Latin back to the original Greek, it's there. Rapture is just a weird word that literally means to be taken up. The rapture is in the Bible. We see that very clearly in 1 Thessalonians uh, 4.17. But there are a couple views out there, and I want to introduce them to you. You may hold this today, and that's cool. You can be part of the church. I don't, I don't hold to them, uh, but there are two views uh, out there that believe the end of the world will come without a rapture. And so the first view is this. Let's go ahead and put that on the screen. The first view is the no rapture view, all right? This, is, this means that Christ is reigning in our hearts. If you want to get super theological, this is called amillennialism, all right? Uh, you can see the chart here, the church age. We're living in that church age now, and the church age will end without warning, and immediately we will go to the eternal state in heaven or hell. I really love the clean nature of that, of that slide. I love it. Uh, the problem is, I just don't see this in Scripture. Um, this is a view, the no rapture view, that Christ is currently reigning in our hearts as king. All right? World evil has been greatly reduced, and that allows the church to spread the gospel increasingly to the end. And a key hallmark of this understanding is Satan is bound during this during the church age. So people that hold to the no rapture view think that Satan is not active today. They think he is bound. They believe that Christ can come back at any moment. Boom, yep. And after Christ comes back, all the judgments will happen at once. There's no seven-year tribulation, no earthly millennial reign. If you don't know what that is, we'll go in that later. Don't worry about that. And Christ is currently reigning in our hearts right now. Again, I love the clear nature of that chart. Seems really simple, but it doesn't seem to square up with the 20-plus future verses that we have in Revelation. Also, I don't believe for a second that Satan is bound right now. Not for a second. Do you believe that for a second, church? He is living and active in this world to deceive. And so I think that is one of the weakest points of the no rapture of your amillennialism. Satan is very active today. And I believe, by the way, that's very clear, not only in our experience in life, but very clear teaching in the New Testament. All right. Another view that doesn't believe in a rapture is one that I will call, we bring his arrival. We usher Christ's second coming to you. This is called post-millennialism. Again, a pretty clean chart. We are in the church age. The church age uh, ushers in uh, a time of Christ's reign, and then the end comes. I'm going to read you what Wayne Grudem, he's way smarter than me on this. This is from Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology. A great help, by the way, uh, if you want to study the end times. Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology, says it this way. This view sees the progress of the gospel... And the growth of the church will gradually increase so that a larger and larger portion of the world's population will be Christians. 
So as a result, there'll be significant Christian influences on society, and society will function more and more according to God's standards. And finally, at the end of this period, Christ will return to earth, believers and unbelievers will be raised, and the final judgment occur, and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, and we will then enter into the eternal state. So what I really, again, hold that they, this view really gets correctly, Jesus is coming back, there's a heaven and there's a hell, and we will be going somewhere, right? If you're a follower of Christ, we'll be going to heaven. What this view really believes, and I'll, I'll kind of break it down to uh, my terms here, is that it, a worldwide revival will usher in the second coming of Christ. So as revival breaks out through this world, Christ will return. It sounds wonderful, actually. But the reality is, uh, if it's true, if you look around the world today, it seems pretty way off, doesn't it? This view was really popular during the, the two great awakenings, but this view all but died at World War I. And again, it kind of tried to have a resurgence, and World War II got it, 9-11 got it. Um, it, it, seems, it. What we see in the world today seems opposite of a worldwide revival of all nations. Should we pray for revival? Yes. We should pray, we should pray for personal. Uh, we should pray for revival in this nation. Uh, we should pray for revival throughout this world. 100% yes, we should pray for revival. Do we want to see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation? Yes, and not only do we want that, it will happen. We will see every tribe, tongue, and nation in heaven. But reading scripture, I don't see this view at all. As we read Revelation, we see the opposite. So yes, our hearts want world peace and world revival now, but I just don't see this in scripture at all. The world on a secular level is getting worse and worse right now. But on a kingdom level, I believe it's increasing. That's where I want to differentiate from this view. Is that on a secular level, it, things are going to get worse and worse and worse. But on a kingdom level, it's going to increase, increase, increase. And so what I believe is going to happen is you're going to have a concurrent deterioration of the world and a concurrent revival throughout the world. Does that make sense? And that is why I land on what's called premillennialism, all right, or a tribulational view, all right? So this is, uh, this is where I land, all right? A tribulational view. We currently live uh, in the church age. Go ahead and put that back up there if you could. We live in the church age, and believers are going to be raptured, and they'll be protected from the wrath of God, the judgments of God, at some point during the seven-year tribulation. Christ, we will then come back down at Christ's second coming, we will regather everyone who placed their faith and trust in Jesus during the tribulation. Many will, and many will in Israel during this time. And then he'll usher in a thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth with his people. There'll be a final small rebellion after that. And then an eternal state of a new heaven and new earth. This is where I land. This is what I see explicitly in the book of Revelation. But even within this view, there are three separate views of, okay, you believe there's a rapture. Yes, I do. It's very clear in 1 Thessalonians uh, 4, verse 17. Okay, but when is the rapture going to happen then during the, during the tribulation? Is it going to happen at the beginning of it? Is it going to happen somewhere during it? Or is it going to happen after? Good question. And there's views for each one. The first view is pre-tribulational view. The pre-tribulational view is the believers are caught up suddenly, unexpectedly, uh, when and Christ will return, uh, the, the pre-tribulation view is that Christ will return to gather, take his people up before any of his wrath is unveiled. And so when that first seal is broken in Revelation chapter 6 verse 1, the church has already been raptured. The church is 
taken away uh, from all the wrath of God. And I, and I believe this is pretty clear in Scripture because when you look at Revelation 4 through 18, there is no mention of the church. The church age has effectively ended as the church has been raptured in heaven. That's the pre-tribulational view. It begins before God's wrath is poured out. There's a mid-tribulational view. This believes the rapture will happen in the middle of the tribulation before the worst of God's wrath commences. Specifically, uh, people that believe in the, by the way, tribulation seven years, so mid would be three and a half years in. So in the mid-tribulation view, or three and a half years in, uh, people believe the rapture occurs in Revelation 14. So the pre-tribulation is Revelation 4. Mid-tribulation view is Revelation 14. Boy, this is, this is getting studious here, isn't it? The post-tribulational view, the last one happens, well, you get it, post, after the tribulation. The church will experience the entire tribulation and then be raptured into his presence where people will face the final judgment of God. So I favor what I see in Scripture. I favor the pre-tribulational view. Here's the reason why. Back to the book of 1 Thessalonians. As Paul is trying to correct a church that was spoken uh, uh, false uh, doctrine, he's trying to correct their doctrine. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Notice that in the beginning. For God did not appoint us to wrath. Now someone may say, well, Christians, they experience persecution all the time. They experience wrath throughout the world. There will be people that will die for their faith today. You're correct. However, that is not because God opened his seals, and that's not a direct wrath of God. That is living in a world that has fallen, a world that's being tormented by the enemy today. Very different. Persecution does not equal the wrath of God in Revelation. I believe God will protect his church by rapturing us before the first seal is broken. His life is in our hands. His life is in our hands, and he's going to protect us from the wrath to come. So, only God can pivot history. If Jesus comes back in our lifetime for the church, we'll be here one moment and gone tomorrow. His story, our story, is in his hands. It leads us to the last question. This is where we're going to land. You're like, how in the world are we going to get the last question in this time? I'm just wetting your appetite for next week. What does the beginning of the end look like next week we will spend our entire time on this question but let's start it off just a bit to get you a little excited all right as the seals are broken god's wrath will begin to play out and it'll be played out by the inauguration of what's called the four horsemen more on that next week so let's kick it off revelation 6 1 then i saw the lamb open up one of the seven seals and i heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice loud like thunder come and I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider held a bow. A crown was given to him, and he went out as a conqueror in order to conquer. Judgment. God's wrath is now being unleashed on the world. The church is being taken and protected and raptured away from this wrath. God is beginning to, to end history and to make all things new. And we see here a first horseman, a person riding on a white horse. Now, you could, if you're reading the totality of the book of Revelation, you'll notice that there's an individual on a white horse in Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, that's clearly Jesus. But in Revelation chapter 6, this is not Jesus. This is an imposter. He is someone who doesn't already have a crown. A crown is given to him. Uh, he is someone that we see conquers and conquers. He's taking over countries through deception. This person is the Antichrist. 
who after great wars that will play out through our world, great wars the church will see before they're raptured, he comes and he conquers the world and brings about a false world peace, a false peace that will descend into utter terror and chaos for those that know Christ, for those that don't submit to this false uh, king, this false, this antichrist, that don't submit to his rules. The world's about to be turned upside down. The antichrist has now entered the picture when God unseals his wrath. And that's what we'll pick up next week. The wars that we experience today, they're not the end. There'll be wars and rumors of wars. I'm not even saying the wars that we're experiencing on earth now are any of the birth pains. I think they are, but they might not be. But they remind us we need to be ready. And we need to be reminded that even though that the church won't experience the revealing of the Antichrist, there are many small, lowercase a, Antichrists in our life that are trying to deceive the many, deceive you for being fully devoted, deceiving you for being on mission, deceiving you from fully loving Christ and loving others. Your life is in the palm of his hand. So this is what we're gonna do. Here's our prep kit for this week. Those of you who aren't with us, we're having a little tongue-in-cheek fun there. We're talking about the end of the world. You need a prep kit, all right? Number one, pray for opportunities to share your faith this week. Pray for opportunities and think who. Number two, ask the Holy Spirit to, uh, for a fresh filling of his power. We're gonna ask for that right now. And third, confess any known sin that you may be harboring in your heart. And finally, I wanna say this. This is bonus. To anybody that's in this room that doesn't know Christ, I want you to know right now you can be made right with him. You don't have to worry about missing it. You can place your faith and trust in Christ right now. This is how you do that. You acknowledge that you need him. You need to personally receive him. You need to acknowledge that you've done wrong in your life. You need to realize that there's nothing in your life that can do to make you right with God. Did you know that? No amount of works or religion can do that. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came 2,000 years ago to come to die on the cross to save you from your sins. But Jesus didn't stay dead because he's a perfect, sinless sacrifice. He rose from the dead. He defeated death in victory, went to heaven until he comes back. And your responsibility is to make sure you're right with God. Just tell Jesus right now you need him as Savior. Place your full faith and trust in him alone right now. Let's pray. So Father, we just thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you are coming and that your promises are not void. They are real and true and will come to be. I pray for anybody in this room right now that doesn't know you as Savior, that right now they would just cry out to you saying, Lord Jesus, I need you. I need you. So Lord Jesus, will, you, will, you, will they just do business with you right now? In fact, if that's you, if you know you need to receive Jesus Christ as Savior, you want to place your faith and trust in him alone, just do this. Say, Lord Jesus, I realize I've sinned. Lord Jesus, I realize I need to be made right with you. I place my full faith and trust that you died on the cross for my sins that you rose from the dead. I trust you, Jesus. I'm giving you my life in Jesus' name. If every, every head's bowed and eyes closed, if today you said yes to Jesus, will you just acknowledge that by just slipping up your hand? Say, yeah, that was me. I, place, I wanna place my faith and trust in Jesus. I place my faith and trust in Jesus today. Will you just acknowledge that right now? Awesome. So Father, thank you so much. Thank you, I see you. Awesome. Anybody else? Great. So Father, we love you. Thank you so much for who you are and what you're doing in this place. And God, I just pray right now that you would put fresh names on our mind that we're gonna share this week. God, we pray that you, um, that you'd fill us with your spirit afresh. In Jesus' name.
thanks again for listening to this week's episode. If you would like to know more about Kenosha City Church, then check us out online at kenosha.church or on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Kenosha City Church. Lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to follow us so that you never have to miss an episode. At Kenosha City Church, we are not perfect people, but real people being made new through Jesus.